It's Uncommon Good, the podcast where we talk with ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. I'm Polly Reese. Fam, today's guest, Philly's own favorite son, James Jackson. He's an activist. He's a technical theater professional. He is a professional photographer and a boatsman to boot. Quick content warning off the top, we talk a lot about the fallout from the overturning of Roe. We talk a lot about the senatorial debate between Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman. We recorded the day after that was televised. So if either of these things are things that you don't need to hear, things that are not right for you, feel free, switch off. We'll see you in the next one. Otherwise, we talk about surviving the lockdowns, James's thoughts about personal freedoms, fair wages in theatrical work, and a little bit of Pacific Northwest indigenous lore thrown in for good measure. This conversation was just, oh, so many laughs, so many times the soul was just touched. It was incredible. Please enjoy my conversation with James. It's nice to finally get to chat to you after (laughs) what feels like a very unexpected and for me at least a reasonably intense collaboration during the the summer lockdowns yeah yeah because we met during the running of the encampments in the ben franklin parkway and on ridge avenue yeah for you what was lockdown like for you so uh yeah covid lockdown uh so uh, I, at the beginning, I, I, I said, you know, like my entire career has always been bringing large numbers of people into small spaces to to see and hear things and to yell and shout a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, that, that's my entire career. What am I going to do now? We're not supposed to be in small, small enclosed spaces sharing uh, breath so much. So, right. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a little bit uh, a little weird. Um, right. Uh, one thing that you may not have noticed, uh, the beginning of lockdown, uh, I, I own and operate, uh, a company that, uh, my, my first career was in freelance photography and, okay. um, we, one of the things I concentrate on is travel photography. Um, and my wife likes to travel. I like to travel. Outstanding. Um, and we had a goal before we would uh enlarge our family at all we would we would travel to all seven continents um so uh about march of 2019 we booked our trip to uh antarctica and in march of 2020 we were traveling in antarctica Mm. um uh timeline wise for those that weren't as keyed (laughs) in on the dates um we left the u.s you know the information about covid had started breaking the the president at the time had made some announcements that you know like this is a disease it's coming out of china there were some travel restrictions but not really much most of it was inbound into the u.s you know there were a couple travel restrictions here and there and uh to go to uh, Antarctica, there's basically only one departure point, and that's Ushuaia in uh, uh, Argentina. Oh, okay. So everybody goes to Ushuaia in Argentina, and you leave, you uh, board your boat there. Um, there are, there's one other way to get to Antarctica, okay. which is to fly to an island um, that has an airport that's about halfway down, that's uh, across the, uh, the, the strait. Sure. Um, and meet your boat there, but who wants to do that that's no fun that's that's i mean that that's no fun at all uh, what i would love to know is uh is is there a particular season when you can and cannot fly or even can and cannot even get in by boat like is it is it is there the potential like a causeway being flooded a couple of times a day that you could be stuck it's it's not uh, that so much as uh, Antarctica does experience the the same thing as uh, the Arctic, whereas there's uh, you know about five months of solid no no sunlight. Oh, 
so the the sun sits on the horizon um and then just dips below the horizon and then comes up a little bit but dips back down oh sure and so for about six months five six months you're you have no sun in the sky um and the weather gets worse um it's not good year round but it's it gets worse um and so winters are are pretty big there um so yeah there there is a uh a, a season and it is our winter um most of the uh sailings are in they start up in january early january and then they sail through the end of march april um interestingly we were on the last trip that our particular boat was taking to uh, antarctica that season and then they were going to go uh, once they returned to Ushuaia, they were going to deboard everybody and then just a, a, a service crew was going to sail it back to Denmark, which is where they're based. Oh, wow. Um, for that's, refit. That's, a, that's a long hike. Uh, it's about a two-week sail, yeah. Okay. Uh, so all this becomes interesting when the timeline comes into play because we departed as Argentina was considering a shutdown of its borders and the 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 trip to antarctica is about a week and a half two weeks in total sure so we were gone for and pretty much incommunicado for about 10 days um and then as soon as we started picking up communications again we found out that argentina had closed its borders well we had left from argentina with the plan of returning to argentina we hadn't really actually left argentina because when you go sail out of ushuaia to Argent- to antarctica and then back okay. to ushuaia you're not exiting the country because you're not entering any other country oh international waters etc right so you're just returning to the port of departure uh-huh. um so there was a question as to oh can we get back in um and uh Long story long, uh, Argentina <laughs> said no. Argentina was like, yeah, you you guys uh, have been out of the country, um, and so we're not letting anyone back in. Um, so now you have 150 people. This is a relatively small boat. Sure. 150 people. None of us had been sick at all, like literally. There yeah. hadn't even been cold. Um, and we had followed COVID check protocol boarding the boat. Mm-hmm. Um and so you have basically an international incident at this point. We had uh, people on board from Kuwait. We had people from the U.S. We had people from uh, Ireland, uh, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, um, literally everywhere. Um, and uh, as we got you know closer and closer, we're all hammering the small bandwidth at the little satellite link that the boat has pretty hard trying to yes of course trying to arrange things and get get flights taken care of etc so the the main communication that the boat has is also via that satellite link so they were like begging us to stop using the internet so much so that (laughs) they could get their communication with their home office so they rerouted us they first said that argentina said they would let us come into buenos aires um okay so that's an extra four day sail from ushuaia okay so as and as we sailed north we're right along the coast basically out a little bit but uh within occasional shot of like cell tower boosting so a lot of us could could get data at that point um so we caught up on the news and you know found out about you know, everybody shutting down their borders and how difficult it was going to be to get back home. So then some conversations happened around, okay, well, this boat is going back to Denmark. Where are you going to go? <laughs> um, and we were like, uh, well, my wife works for the federal government and she's not going to be aboard this boat for two weeks because they can't literally do their work without her. Um, I perfectly fine going on this boat to Denmark. I'm fine with it. You know, you take me there. I'll spend, you know, six months there, but, <laughs> but my wife can't. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So then as we get 
close to Argent the uh, close to Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina again said no. Um, we're not letting you uh, land the boat here. Um, Argentina in Argentina is right across from Uruguay, and Uruguay's capital uh, uh, is is right there. Um, is that um, Paramaibo or no, Montevideo? No, no. Montevideo. Okay. So Montevideo is right there, and so uh, the boat operating company contacted the Montevidean government mm. and uh, the Uruguayan government, and they were like, hey, <laughs> we're kind of stuck. Um, the Uruguayan government agreed to let the boat dock, but only for provisioning. And then in uh, what is an interesting uh, ploy, uh, the captain of our boat basically refused to leave the dock. Um, and they can't make him. You know, it's a big boat. They can't, like, tow it off the dock or anything. Um, so our captain basically said, no, uh, I will not leave this dock until you de-board de my passengers. Um, sure. And so it becomes a weird international incident. And, and there, there's uh, <clears throat> every consulate was coming down to this provisioning pier and provisioning piers are like you know if you think of the philadelphia waterfront you have like the pens landing area where all the people go right right and you have the area where they unload the all the cars yes that nobody goes there yes that's what a provisioning pier is like okay so okay. you know it's just designed for trucks and uh shipping and freight. shipping and freight to come to a boat and not people but every day you had all these consulate members from, I think it was something like 40 different countries we had represented on the boat coming down to this this provisioning pier and standing within eyesight of all of us and, you know, talking to us on cell phones and stuff. Um, and uh, the most people we had were from the U.S. Um, but uh, oddly, I got <coughs> uh, roped into being the... The representative of all of us because i was the one who reached out to the most people and in, in the first place i had the most connections to government type people so i reached out to everyone i even reached out to cassie's boss um which she later got really mad mad at me for but there is a a, a set of plans in place for people who work for the government and are important enough if they're stuck someplace to be evacuated sure and he gave me the number and the code word to call if if i needed to, to pull that <laughs> so so yeah it would have ended up with uh you know a uh u.s military helicopter landing on this provisioning pier and basically dragging cassie off and and flying her home uh but so yeah. So, so Cassie, um, your your spouse almost got James Bonded out of there. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a there's a scene in um, in uh, what is it? Uh, Patriot Games, where sure. they they fly down with a, a helicopter and pick up Jack Ryan, um, and I keep okay. I keep teasing her that's going to happen to her one day. Because it actually probably will, but you know she's one of like ten people who knows what she knows. Um, and so, uh, she, she uh, oh, no. <laughs> she's a, she's a considered a relatively important person, uh, by certain people that are, that have certain buttons, but yeah. Should I have gotten government clearance for us to have this interview today? No, no, no. Uh, I don't know enough. I, 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 and, and, and she often yeah, says yeah. she, she doesn't know anything either. Uh, that may just be a, a government ploy, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> sure. We, we had a guest on the show from the director of religious education for the U.S. Army. Mm -hmm. They were saying that 90% of those sorts of classified things are largely very, very boring. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and... Even having top secret clearance is almost meaningless because a lot of the top secret stuff isn't really non-public information. It's okay. just the it's classified top secret so that if somebody's gathering that particular type of information, it, it, it sets off red flags. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, 
there are other classifications that are above top secret. You know, top secret isn't isn't all that, but then <laughs> there are some things. You know, like like the stuff that was found at Mar-a-Lago that uh, are are dangerous uh, for people. Of course, of course, there are there 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 are levels of secrecy that we don't even need to know about exist. Right. I hear you. <laughs> Observation. I am reminded of that movie from back in the early 2000s with Tom Hanks and Catherine Zeta-Jones. You got the terminal, but on a <laughs> boat. <laughs> I, I wonder, does any of this play into the, the love of boating and the sea? I know one of the things that I was so excited to talk to you about is that you recently started fixing up a boat. Um, yeah, I, I mean... The, these things don't play into that love so much as they're the execution of that love of mm. boating mm. Um, and travel in general. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I did. I, I bought uh, an O'Day 322 uh, from 1989. Um, O'Day is a now defunct uh, yacht building company that um, was uh, a U.S. based company. They made really great boats. They so just... this boat is now a collectible. Uh, nobody's gonna collect it. It's, <laughs> it's like uh, I'm trying to think of a of a equivalent in the car market. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, you know how how uh, Dodge is now owned by Chrysler. Yes, um, but yes. it at one time was its own company yes and, and was, was purchased by right. a bigger company yeah so think if if chrysler had purchased dodge and then just disbanded the name mm. uh it, it, you know it's a mid-rate relatively common uh yacht but it's it is it's not you know it's not collectible it's just nice <laughs> <laughs> so you know like we always talk about people having yachts and planes and cars and expensive sure. things sure and i'm always trying to find inexpensive ways to do those same things um and i like i'm not wealthy like but i own a yacht i own a 32 foot boat and it's called a yacht because it's 32 feet long um, there's some technical differences between a yacht and a boat. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, and, and I didn't pay a lot for it. And I, and you mentioned I'm fixing it up. I'm doing all the work myself, you know, as I'm not like some millionaire or something. I, I don't even have a million dollars, like, and that's nothing in today's terminology. Uh, but, um, you know, planes, the same thing, like, most most of the planes out there flying are from the 70s uh 60s and 70s and there are these old what was marketed to the general middle class all these things were available to the middle class in america uh just 30 40 years ago why aren't they available now you know like why 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 have we created this mythos around certain items as if they should be such a luxury that they're out of reach for everybody and i don't think they should be that's such a good question right the the question of what luxury is what it does for us as people when we have the privilege of enjoying it and how we as a collective society as humanity get to decide who has access to it right 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 yeah and and i'm always trying to find a way to give more people access to stuff like that Mm. um i don't think that it should be i i get i know several people who have all these fears and phobias and uh, i don't even know what to call them but psychological things built around travel Mm. as if it's this thing that only other people get to do everyone friend who's she's a a great activist she's a great producer she she's all over the city and she's she's not poor she's not 
under the poverty line. She's not somebody who's struggling. Um, she's not wealthy either. But, you know, I, I've had many conversations with her about, hey, I love travel and I would love to share that with you as a friend of mine. What do you think about, you know, like if I plan this trip, would you consider going with us? And and she has all these blocks built into it that it creates like tension in in our relationship as friends, even mm -hmm. to just even to just broach the topic that way. And it's very frustrating for me because like that's how I, you know, display my friendship is, you know, I have things that I want people to that that I enjoy that I want to share with other people. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but, yeah, it's wild to me that these things that that should be within reach for everybody, really, I don't think anybody should be locked to being stuck in one place if they don't want to be. Um, I, I find it frustrating to that, that people build up, uh, these things as something that's unattainable for them. I'm reflecting on that a moment. And I think, I think I noticed two culprits in that sort of system that feel very devious and very, I'll say it, perhaps even potentially evil. The, the sense that the system that we live in is designed so that some people, not just, not just in terms of the experience of luxury or an act that a person can take, but there is some sort of personhood associated with their humanity, their, their core being, that they are less deserving of the good and good things. There is something about our system that says that. that and... So I, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like the... Uh, like the restrictions they set up around like food stamps. Yes. Okay, so you have food stamps. So you, there's suddenly a list of things that you can't buy. Yes. And there's also suddenly a ceiling to your income. Yes. Otherwise, you lose that assistance. And then there's a gap if you lost that assistance, but you're not making up that assistance by beating that income where it's not like they scale it back. It's just an all or nothing thing. Yes, yes. Why are people at the low end of an income scale not as deserving of a steak for dinner or mm. lobster thermidor or, uh, you know, mm. I understand from an economic standpoint or even a conservational standpoint, pricing, say, you know, uh, what did they, they closed the snow crab uh, for the season. Um, sure. Because the snow crab, due to climate change, are moving closer to Russian waters, and the and the mariners can't go there to fish those those waters. So, the price of snow crab is obviously going to be insanely high this this winter. Of course. Yeah. Um, and I understand, you know, like supply demand. You don't have it. You can't sell it for as cheap. You need to raise your prices so that demand goes down, and you can keep up with your demand fine that all makes sense but if i'm going to give somebody assistance and guarantee them food why am i only guaranteeing them food that's unhealthy or processed or junk or something that i wouldn't eat myself why am i not providing enough assistance that they could yeah. eat as well as i do yes um yes i don't know these are the kinds of things that that cause my activism <laughs> like you know these kinds of thoughts are the the kind of thing that that you know i um so one of the things i do is i have a production company 
Um, we work on events. Yeah. We work on theater. We work on um, film and television and advertising. Uh, Light Thief Productions. And um, one of the reasons I founded it is because I got frustrated working in the industry for yeah. other people who always seem to decide things in a way that I wouldn't decide them. Yeah. So um, when you're deciding the budget of a show, right? Um, you generally start out with a rough framework, a rough idea of what you're going to spend on, on things. Yes. Um, and I, at the time, around the time I started to do this production company, a lot of people were really undercutting what they were willing to pay people. Yeah. Um, minimum wage is still seven twenty-eight, I think. Seven twenty-eight an hour. I think in, you're right. Yeah. In Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, and I had a lot of companies basically saying that's all that they were willing to pay stagehands. Um, now stagehands, don't get me wrong. Oftentimes, don't have to do anything specialized. They have to do. They sure. have to do the basics of what anybody who is working has to do. A lot of people call that unskilled labor. I'd say there's several skills involved in doing what everybody else has to do to show up for a job. Because some days I am not capable of all of them. But yeah. <laughs> but I, let's just t call it general labor. General labor, they were saying, wasn't worth more than seven twenty-five, twenty-eight an hour. Yeah. Um, I've always thought it was worth more than that. Um, you know, I, I at, at the yeah. at the time it was. Uh, let's see, that was about two thousand one, no, two thousand eleven. Okay. About two thousand eleven, um, the. $15 an hour was starting to become not quite enough. Um, right. Especially for somebody who isn't guaranteed like a 30, 40 hour a week. Right. Um, so I would often go back and say, I don't have enough budget for labor. And there would often be pushback. Well, don't pay them so much. Um, and that always came back to ending up me just doing extra work because I wasn't going to pay people less than what they needed to survive, but also the job needed to get done. Yes. And in theater, there is still this, the show must go on attitude. So um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why, why we all believe that. Uh, it's very pervasive. I suspect for, for me, there's this sense that we are the purveyors of the inspiration of the human spirit. Mm. If we don't do the work, then who will? Right. Right. At the same time, if nobody gives us or gives our team the money that they need for a fair day's work to be able to eat, keep their house warm, then who will? Right. So... At any rate, you know, that, yeah. the, that's why I was like, well, if I'm going to pay these people, maybe I should just take the whole project and take the decision making out of the hands of the people who are making these bad mm -hmm. decisions. And therefore, I can decide. Mm -hmm. And when I'm deciding, I could just say, no, it's going to cost you more money. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a weird thing in production because um, with clients, I can say this is going to cost you $84,000 mm -hmm. and there's not much that they can do to argue that they can, Whereas if I'm working for them and I say, this labor is going to cost you $84,000. They're like, well, how can we save a couple of bucks? It's, it's a weird thing. It's, it's weird that I can price, I can package everything together and price it as a, as a single commodity and people are more willing to either take it or leave it. Or versus if I'm working for them, they seem to think I have more f latitude to change it. I wonder why that is. There's, it, it would seem that the intention should be that 
that we want everyone to do a good job. So if we pay them a fair wage, a competitive rate, perhaps even just a tiny bit more or maybe significantly more, then we'll get a better quality product. Right? (laughs) I mean... When you look, uh, when you start doing business, I've been doing business as an entrepreneur type person for most of my life. Sure. Um, I've been a freelancer. I've been owner of my own photo studio. I've been, uh, you know, I own this production company. I've done multiple indie films. I've done, you know, um, all kinds of different things. But uh, so there's these things that all business people including freelancers encounter and when you start looking at other people's numbers you realize how little labor is is valued all across the the marketplace as far as like a capitalist marketplace you know labor is valued at practically nothing when you look at successful companies successful companies often budget things by thirds which is is so weird that it works out this way but like a third of your budget is labor a third of your budget is supplies and a third of your budget is profit and goes back into the company so successful companies often budget that way and then they they have that little 10 percent you know like if you do it actually at 30 percent you have that little like ten percent that you can take out and and you know ah, use as got it. you know like okay your your that's your you know your gift to yourself yeah yeah um so when I'm looking at a project and the numbers work out right you know to basically be thirds I'm like oh okay this budget will work um but then if you look at to into something like McDonald's let's just take McDonald's as an example. You know, there's this outcry from, I mean, uh, I don't really pull my punches with people that I think are morons, and these people are morons. (laughs) Um, But there's this outcry from people who think that raising the wage, minimum wage, to $15 an hour will mean $50 Big Macs. I mean, maybe it's not, I don't even know what they say. It's moronic. It's moronic because if you really look at the cost of a Big Mac... The cost of labor to build a single Big Mac is something like 8% of the cost. So even if you quadrupled the cost of labor to build that single Big Mac, it's not going to cost $50. It's not going to cost $17. It's not going to cost... It'll probably be the same, actually. You know, if McDonald's really wanted, they could keep the price the same because... Most of their cost of the Big Mac, the consumer cost of the Big Mac, is profit. It's over 50% markup. It's it's over 100% markup. Like something like 60% of the the cost the the price that you pay goes to the company as profit, and it gets split up from there because there's franchise fees and there's the franchisee who's earning some earning some of the money, and then there's the major franchise who's earning the lion's share of the money. Just saying, oh, if you increase the cost of labor to $15 an hour, it's going to lead to $17 Big Macs. That doesn't make any sense. I, I, I was in, a, in an argument today uh, online where most of my arguing happens um, <laughs> uh, with a, a woman who is uh, very anti-abortion. So the post in general was by an activist here in philadelphia uh who's a progressive and and he posted uh one of fetterman's campaign issues is that he will always be pro-choice and one of oz's campaign issues and the quote that is being most frequently bandied about in left circles this morning is oz said that a pregnant woman's decision about whether or not to have an abortion should be between their doctor them themselves their doctor and their local politicians which makes no sense why why are local politicians involved in this and 
I would, as a progressive, go even further to say the doctor doesn't even really have a say in this. This 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 conversation is for one person, and that's the person who is pregnant. Like, it's not a conversation. It is a decision that one person has to make. Um, and, you know, uh, he posted because he said, you know, like, this election is about uh, Roe v. Wade and the Dodd decision, which turned overturned at Roe v. Wade, and personal uh, choice and, and the right to privacy. What he's very right about is that... This election is very much about right to privacy. Sure. If yeah. people showing up to the polls don't like really hammer the Republican Party, like if it's another, you know, like twenty five percent of people vote and 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 ten percent of them vote Republican, if it's not like a landslide, we really have lost the narrative. Very few people are communicating the urgency of the Dodd decision. What that decision means is that nobody has the right to privacy. Nobody has any rights not enumerated in the Constitution, either in the original document or any amendment. Hmm. There's a lot of stuff that we take for granted that isn't enumerated anywhere. Hmm. And should we not as a population say hey we've caught on to this we noticed what you did and that's not right by voting if we don't do that then it means that all the messaging that obscures what the real issue is is working uh, mm. um so this this woman responded mm. that that the abortion fight isn't important to everyone and that there are a lot of other issues that voters need to consider. Um, to be quite frank, no, abortion isn't a concern for everybody. It's a concern for people who are getting abortions. But the, 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 the decision there, the, 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 the freedom of choice, the, 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 the right to personal privacy... Uh, and personal decision making and autonomy that's what's the issue it was never about abortion it has never been about abortion abortion is not no republican candidate gives flying crap about abortion i can guarantee you sure. like they'll they'll play lip service to it they'll say oh i'm a, a devout christian i don't want to see any babies uh destroyed etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know to be honest I love people, I love humans, and I don't want to see any uh, baby die needlessly. At the same time, I don't. it's not my decision, you know, it's not my choice. My opinion, mm. my feelings don't matter, and this is where we're getting around to what I was arguing about. Why is it the fuck your feelings group that is so concerned with us honoring their feelings? The, this is mm. this is all about feelings. The the the, the Republican Party, the the messaging of the the, you know, like, there is a group that is dedicated to returning to fascism, returning to an an environment where. Where you have to be male, and wealthy to have a say in politics. There is actually literally a group of people that are doing that. And that's not conspiracy theory. That's just the facts. Like, that's just really what's happening. And it, and they're very good at messaging. And the messaging is always about putting some sort of issue that pulls at emotion in front of an issue of personal freedom hmm. to to obscure what it is that the end goal is the end goal of the abortion fight the end goal of the of the dodd ruling is not uh and i may be misquoting that uh, and i apologize if that's the wrong name I... hey listeners it's polly the case that james is referring to is dobbs versus jackson women's health organization Back to James. 
but the end end goal of the of the ruling that overturns Roe v. Wade is not to overturn Roe v. Wade. If you read it, it has very very little to do with abortion, and it actually literally doesn't say much about abortion. It doesn't say that this is to protect you know unborn babies. This doesn't say you know we need to uh, ensure that you know children are born and cared for before they they can speak for themselves all it says is there is no right to privacy enumerated in the constitution therefore this 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 ruling roe v wade and all the other rulings that used a right to privacy as the construction of the ruling are invalid well there's a lot of there's a lot of law that's based on a right to privacy that the Supreme Court now says we don't have. Mm. It's a lot of law. And that kind of thing just, it infuriates me. It's, it's bringing, law shouldn't be about feelings. Law shouldn't be about, and I, I think that's where the separation of church and state might have originally been coming from. Law shouldn't be about things that you feel in your gut they they shouldn't be about things that you you know you intuitively understand law should be about protecting things that are real and solid and uh have a definitive answer and have facts behind them you know i can i can say factually that uh you know any of uh, any uh, pregnancy can't survive until 23 weeks. Uh, can't survive the death of the mother. I can say mm-hmm. that factually. Yeah. You know that that's yeah. just a fact. It's, yeah. it's just there's never been a, a a fetus that has been removed from the mother or yeah. a, a you know a baby born after the mother's death that was younger than that. Yes. Just developmentally, they don't have skin. They don't have lungs. They don't you know. There's a lot of things still to grow. It's still like Franken fetus at that point. Right. So I can say that factually. And sure. So, you know, even though Roe v. Wade isn't perfect, you know, it sets it sets this viability standard for when we should be conferring um, protections onto a, a, a living human being. Mm. Um, and viability as a standard it's wishy-washy but it's better uh it's this this woman said that she she doesn't believe that abortion should take place after 15 weeks all these numbers they're arbitrary they're wishy-washy at the end of the day abortion is a really hard choice and it's not a choice that anybody else's feelings should factor into and a choice that I don't think anyone would ever want to have to make in either direction to be in a situation where they have to seriously consider the medical ramifications, the socio-emotional ramifications on themselves to have to do that thing. And then if you look into it, most abortions are, are chosen, like most, most people choosing abortion are choosing it because they can't economically afford a, a yes. child, um, because they don't have support, because they don't have social support, because uh, they don't have structural support in the way our country is set up. Yeah. You know, you, if you want to end abortion, fix all that first. Why, why is that? so hard to do why 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 is that not where we're looking um so yeah i get really obviously you can see i get really passionate about stuff like this but it's um it's crazy making for me i i i i don't know um my wife often says you know james you have such uh such a uh a belief in people in, in general like that, that that they'll they'll decide things well and that they they're operating from a place of logic and and understanding and intelligence and i'm like yeah because i want to i want to believe that i want to believe that you know you choose to right um 
but yeah i don't know maybe maybe her way of dealing with it being jaded is is better <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe I should just switch. Maybe I should just uh, just be jaded. <laughs> maybe it's better for the two of you that you balance each other out. <laughs> it is. It is a lot better. Um, <laughs> yeah, we have a, a pretty strong relationship, and I, yeah. and I, I actually appreciate that. I can bounce these frustrations off of her, and she'll just look at me and be like, "Oh, sweet, simple child." <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> um, there's something as I've observed your work, you have the, the live stream, the podcast coffee break chat, mm. which we've talked about in the past. If you haven't seen it, go see it. You run it how many times a week? Like when, when just you're running a, a season just once a week, it, it felt like it feels it feels like so many so much more because i'm surprised you i'm subscribed to your facebook notifications but but you run <laughs> you run the show you run the boat you run the production company mm. you are very committed to looking after the family and being like one one of the most one of the most one of the people i know who is the most careful with their time to make sure that 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 your time and all of the all of the things that you're doing is grounded in your family. I would really love to know what sorts of things that you look to to help you find that balance to help you maintain what feels like an unending and relentless stream of energy to do it all and when <laughs> things are tough when times are tough and morale is low what helps keep the spirit buoyed um okay so hopefully cassie doesn't ever listen to this interview <laughs> <laughs> she would wonder who you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> um no, I mean, uh, uh, she would say I overcommit. Um, uh, I think, I think she's, I think you're both right in different ways. Um, uh, I think that sometimes I, 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 the reason why I'm so careful to try and make space for in my calendar for my family is because in the past that's been a sore spot that's been a, a problem that's mm. been a, a, a an area in which i could do better and, and you can always do better you can yeah you know always do better with work-life balance um it's it's not easy or intuitive or something that you can ever really stop working at i don't think um mm. i think work-life balance is is key though uh to what you're saying you know like when I hit those those times when the energy's running low, when when I you know I I suffer migraines. If I have a migraine and you know like I just can't do anything that particular day, I have to rely on the fact that well another day I can put in you know more labor and more work and get the same amount done that uh, that I would have today. If you tried uh, to push through it. Right. So I am a, 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 a big believer in the fact that um, if you're a person of color, you have to do things about twice as good to get about half the recognition. So Oh, yes. I was um, always taught it was like three or four. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, to get the one recognition, you have to do things four times as good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and I, I, I come from a black and Asian household. Um, and uh, my mother is European. And um, I'll set aside also that means that like you will have perfect skin on your <laughs> deathbed. Like you will be the most glorious. Beautiful corpse the world has ever seen. <laughs> Even if I'm in my 90s, 
which uh, it looks like it probably my grandfather is uh, is in his uh, 90s. He he was uh, stationed in Japan at the end of World War Two. Um, and that's how he met my grandmother. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, the uh, but I was going to say the the Asian household part uh, for those that don't have Asian heritage, um, Asian mothers and Asian grandmothers uh, really expect you to excel at anything educational or information based. Everything. Uh -huh. And artwork too. Like they're like they don't let up there either. Like you know, if you're bad at music or or painting or drawing, they will make sure that's what you do for the rest of your life until you know how to do it at least a little bit. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> like that. That <laughs> that's my grandmother's solution to. I, I, I have this vivid memory that I'm uh, having a child is bringing up all these vivid memories of of me growing up. And I have this vivid memory of really getting frustrated trying to learn the alphabet mm. um, and the American alphabet uh, in general. Quick clarifying yeah. question. Yeah. Given your heritage yeah. and all of the frustration that you had about learning the alphabet, had you exited the womb yet? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I had. <laughs> so, I this I don't remember how old I was, but I was living with my grandparents, so that sure. puts me in the under five arena. Okay. So I I don't and I don't think I was going to kindergarten yet because I sure. was with my grandmother. So that means it was during the day, and I was with my grandmother. So that puts me pre kindergarten, and the and this is the late seventies. They didn't have pre K. Um, yes. Well, they had yes. pre-K, but it was one year pre-K. Yes, yes. Uh, and it was more like daycare. So I wasn't like two. I was probably three or four. My sure. grandmother is trying to teach me the alphabet, uh, the the American alphabet, uh, English. And I have this problem with almost learning almost anything. If I can't contextualize it, if I can't like understand what something stands for it's very difficult for me to learn it mm. so all the mm. rote things like times tables um the alphabet all those like basic building blocks yes. meant nothing to me and and what ha is more symbolic of a thing one could learn than language right right but language language made sense to me Learning words, I, I've always been able to learn words in context. Mm. Like, I very mm. rarely have to go to a dictionary for the meaning of a word. Mm. Um, but, and that was a big advantage in high school and, and school in general. But the, the, the letters didn't mean enough. Like, you know, you have A means apple, but or it starts apple. Yes. And it's, it's just these loose connections. The things that like, that are loosely connected like that didn't, and still don't to some extent, make sense to me. Sure. It's like uh, memorizing a credit card number. I can't memorize a credit card number. Those those that string of numbers has no meaning. It has no yes. reference. Yes. However, my driver's license number when I was in New Jersey, all the sections of your driver's license number in J New Jersey actually have a meaning. And I could memorize my driver's license number in New Jersey because oh, I figured out what the meaning of each section okay. of numbers was. All right. Letters have no meaning. They have no yes. meaning intrinsically of themselves. So, and learning the alphabet as a song with no, you know, no meaning to it, just, <laughs> it was very frustrating for me. My grandmother, who is Japanese, her solution was to just make me concentrate on the alphabet every day. Until I finally just learned it, you know. Um, but that, yeah, that's a for those that that aren't of Asian heritage. That's what a, an Asian grandmother or an Asian mother will do. Is if you're not getting something, they will just hammer you on it until you finally just either go insane or learn it. <laughs> yes. <I> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, Adopted, raised by whites, but model minority. Same thing. Yeah. Uh, so you might notice a lot of 
my iconography, the things that I use as logos, the screen names I pick, etc., are Raven based. Yes. Um, there is uh, Pacific Northwest uh, creature character mythos around the Raven. There, there's a lot of mythical creatures in the native histories of the Pacific Northwest, but uh, the sure. Raven is a bigger, more important one in uh, the Pacific Northwest, and he's a trickster. Yes. Um, tricksterism in native cultures isn't a negative um and i i mm. often think that it shouldn't be in our cultures either um in european culture uh but uh, european culture a lot of time does drive tricksterism into the negative mm. uh but i'm just prefacing the story with that because the raven is a trickster but everything that he does is by way of making things better so mm. if he sees a problem he corrects that problem but the way he addresses the problem is always trick through trickery mm. um the man who sits on the tides is the name is the actual business name of my company with the boats mm. uh, the man who sits on the tides is in a uh, pacific northwest story um, it is big in, uh, it is mainly in the Tinglet and, uh, I may be mispronouncing that, uh, and Haida cultures. Um, the Haida culture, uh, has the story of the man who sits on the tides and he, uh, the raven, uh, one day noticed that sometimes the, the, the water of the ocean is out and the beach is full of fish and shells and things for, humans and birds and other animals to pick up and eat or play with or make uh, jewelry out of, etc. Sure. Uh, and then sometimes the water will come in and there's nothing for the, the humans to do. And Raven loves to mm. eat. Raven loves to walk down the beach and, and collect shells and, and eat clams and, and he, he didn't have any food. And so one day the tide came in and never went out. Didn't go out for a long, long time. And Raven was getting really hungry. So he, he flew north and he, he found, uh, he found a, an elder and he asked the elder, why is the water in? The elder said, I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, why don't you go ask the, the man who sits on the fog? And the raven said, what? There's a man who sits on the fog. He said, yeah, yeah. If you fly east uh, along this river, um, and this is a, an important river in the Pacific Northwest. I don't remember the name of it at the, at the moment, but it's a, a, a trade route. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you fly to east, you'll find the man who sits on the fog. So the raven flies east, flies the whole length of the river, finds the headwaters of the river, and a fog begins to build. Well, just before the fog begins, Bill, he sort of notices there's a man in a big hat. And the man pulls down his hat and a fog, the fog is billowing out from under it. So he goes and pastures the man who, who's in the big hat and, and says, do you know why the water is in? And the, and the man just pulls his hat down tighter and the fog builds deeper. It it's gonna do you no good mm. to to keep building the fog. I can see you. I know you're there. Mm. Would you just answer my question? Why is the water in? The man who who sits on the fog pulls off his hat, and the fog stops building and dissipates a bit. And he says, "I I don't know. Uh, I just didn't want to talk to you. But mm. if you fly west a lot, you you'll find uh, a big island, and I think that's where all the water comes from." So he flies west. He flies west for many, many days. Um, and he sees this huge island. And on the island, there's a man sitting. So he flies down closer and realizes it's not just a man. It's a huge man. It's a <laughs> giant man. He's, he's the size of four mountains. Yeah. So he flies down um, and he, he lands on, on the man and... And he says, excuse me, do you know why the water is in? 
And the man says, go away. So the raven's like, I, I, I just have a question. Would you please answer my question? I, I just want to know why the water is in. He says, go away. I, I'm sitting. I'm taking a break. So the, the raven begins to fly away. And uh, he notices that seagulls are gathering around the man. And uh, the man stands up and swats at them. And then he sits back mm. down. And But as he stands up, a big hole opens up underneath of him and all the water rushes in from the oceans. Um, and then mm. as he sits back down, it displaces the water and the water goes back out again. So he's like, oh, I see. It goes back to the giant. Why aren't you? Yeah. Why aren't you getting up and you know letting the water in and out every day? Well, I don't. That's not my job. What do you mean that's not my job? You you obviously have a job to do, and it's to stand up and sit down. No, I am the man who sits on the tides. Hmm. That's not my job. It's not my job to let the water in. It's just my job to sit on the tide. And Raven says this won't hmm. do. So the raven flies up, points his beak directly at the man's butt, flies as fast <laughs> as he can, and stabs him in the butt. And the man stands up and jumps around and you know swats at his butt. And then he looks around to try and find the raven. The raven has flown off a good ways by this point, and yeah. the man can't find him. Yeah. So he sits back down. Well, the raven does this over and over and over and over again many 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 times and then eventually he gets tired of doing this hmm. and he flies a little ways off and he's he, he he just hovers there and he notices that every once in a while the man will get up stretch look around and then sit back down so that's how we have tides hmm. um but yeah what a lovely story. And <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I wish we had more time for more glorious conversation, <laughs> but we're near the end of our time. So I, so I do need to ask you one final question. Sure, sure. And you've touched on it a little bit, I suspect. Okay. That is, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? Oh, my. What a good question. Um, hmm. What do I want the world to look like? You know, um... Before uh, I had a child, um, I always, I grew up, uh, and this comes from the African-American community, my grandfather, who is a black man, um, always taught me to leave things better than I found them. Um, so I always grew up with that. Leave things better than you found them. Leave them not just as you found them, not worse than you found them but better than you found them and that that has always been a driving force in my life leave things better than i than you found them um now that i have a child i find that what i want to do is leave the world changed into a place where she can grow up without experiencing the same things that I did that are negatives. What is one tiny thing, the smallest thing, like buying a coffee small that you do to move yourself, move your world one step closer to that vision? Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things. <laughs> um, tiny. Uh, things that I do without thinking about them really. Uh, use reusable bags. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't use straws because I've never liked straws. That wasn't a, even really a, a choice. Um, even tinier than that. Um, you know, really, everything I touch, I try to touch from the perspective of anti-racism and environmentalism. Yeah. Um, yeah. So any decision, I kind of run through those filters first. Um, and I don't, 
uh, I don't think that's it's it's both tiny and big because like you can make tiny decisions uh and and run them through those filters um and they end up being big decisions then i guess um yeah yeah from 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 the depth uh, of my core and for 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 our conversation today uh, very grateful for your time i really appreciate your time my thanks to my guest james jackson find out more about his production company light thief productions his photography company raven eyes and his charter sailing company man who sits on the tides at his websites in the episode description below thanks for tuning in to uncommon good with polly reese this program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube and Instagram. Follow us there for accessible video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on Instagram or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good, to be the uncommon good.